Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 70. I think I really do owe all of you listening an apology. That last episode, episode 69, was longer than I told you it would be, and it was tough to get through. I know it. Part of my zeal relates to providing a complete record of what I feel are some of the most important things related to this whole story. It's not that information such as the autopsy report doesn't already exist, and honestly, in many cases, it's much more well done and more well researched in some books than I could ever do justice to it. But there's some things that must just end up in the record. I was adamant about that, and that was the case when it came to the autopsy report. What was missing was the usual analysis on my end about what all that meant. We got to 40 minutes in the episode, and I was coming to the conclusion that there was just no more time to go any further, at least not in episode 69. Let's face it, it wasn't my best episode. You know what? When I was a kid, about maybe nine years old, I was just beginning to be introduced to pro football and what would become my childhood favorite pro football team, the Miami Dolphins. Back in 1970, Don Shula came to town to coach them, and he turned a team that was, I believe, 4-10 and the year before in 1969, a relatively new expansion franchise in Miami, into a team that was 10-4 that year in 1970. And they made the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. Unfortunately, on a muddy field in Oakland, they lost in the playoffs that year. But it was a miraculous turnaround, and eventually it led to the perfect season, where they went 17-0 a few years later. Over the years, Don Shula would rack up enough wins to become the winningest coach in NFL history. And all of those wins that were racked up after 1970 were all with the Dolphins. I was hooked from the start of that journey. The Dolphins had a couple of outstanding seasons after that perfect season, and if it hadn't been for a crazy last-minute interception against the Oakland Raiders, again, they might have won three Super Bowls in a row, and not just two. And they might have been in four Super Bowls in a row, and not just three. Now, other teams over the years have had greater dynasties, the Steelers and the Patriots for sure. But, The greatness of a perfect season in 72-73 was never achieved again by the Dolphins, and it has never been achieved since by any other team. There has never been a perfect season in the NFL before or since that date. What a moment. And what I experienced personally right then, I had never experienced before or since. It was enthralling, only I just couldn't have appreciated how good it was at that moment. Even though, even at that moment, it felt incredibly good. I think you all know what I mean. Soon, we will be coming on to the 50th anniversary of that record. Each year, when the last pro football team that's undefeated is finally chalking one up in the loss column, the Dolphin players that are still with us on this earth from that 72-73 undefeated season all get together and have a toast. They toast that undefeated team.
They've been able to make that toast every year for the last 48 or 49 years. I think 50 will be especially sweet. Over the years, I have met many of those players from that team and that season. It was a very special time and a very special group of men. Sometimes things magical happen early in life, and then perhaps rather unfortunately you come to expect that things will always happen that way. And then they don't. And you spend the whole rest of your life waiting for things magical to happen again. And they may never happen again. Football fans especially know that. Whatever your brand of football is, but I suspect that most of us know that in our own lives, in some way. You know the old saying, we may never pass this way again. Well, a long way from the football fields, you know, there is a portion of a Shakespearean sonnet that quite often comes to mind for me, because I think it's so true about life. It goes like this. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah, that goes for women, too. I think it's just back then they, they only referred to the men. Well, that was a bit of a wander that had nothing to do with what I was talking about, but I think the original point here that I was trying to get across is that episode 69 wasn't my best episode. I'm not going to have a perfect season. If some episodes are a win and some are a loss, this last one probably wound up in the loss column, or maybe it was a tie. It was not for everybody. It generated less consternation for the diehards who listen than the casual listener. But this season of JFK is more like a baseball season where you play 169 games. You can't be perfect. We have played 69 games so far. You can't be perfect. My challenge is to keep as many episodes as I can really good and good enough most of the time so I can keep you listening and tell the story the way I think it should be told. And sometimes a personal disappointment awakens you too much. It awakens you to what, well, what must be next. It sort of takes you to another place after your cheese has been moved. Remember that book, Who Moved My Cheese? As a side note, my cheese has been moved a lot in the last five years. For those of you who have listened to the podcast series as a whole, or if you know me personally, there are some out there that do. Well, you know, you know the bigger events anyway. It happens to everyone. Sooner or later, your cheese gets moved. To some, it just happens a lot. To some, it just happens a little. But to everyone, it just happens. All I can say is, embrace the change. Most of the time, I can. But today, and recently for me personally, it's been harder. Sometimes there is a moment when you wake up, so to speak. You finally get it. You have a moment of consciousness about the fact that your cheese really has been moved. It may have been moved for a while and you just didn't even know it. No one said it would be easy, but what I have found when things get tough, someone or something, sometimes it's simply your faith, always swoops in to help you find peace and find the patience and wisdom you need to get through the moment. I had a listener give me a blessing last week. In fact, I had several listeners in the past few weeks give me blessings. For those of you that I exchanged emails with related to the podcast, you know who you are, and I really appreciate the interaction. 
Each of you left me with something special. It was nourishment as I hunt for the cheese that has left the vicinity. I'll find that cheese again. (laughs) But like most of us, I know I'll be a lonely hunter in the meantime. This podcast is a labor of love for me, but every once in a while, the reality of life just creeps in. I want to have a winning percentage, but I'm a realist too. I know it won't be a perfect season. The record will not be broken. Hats off to those 72-73 Dolphins. As a nine-year-old, they taught me much. They kept it up over the years, and I'm still learning from them 49 years later. Well, it's time to pivot from the lessons of life and get back to our story of the JFK assassination. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 70 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The official story is that no intact bullets or even large bullet fragments were ever found during the course of the autopsy, and that's not all. In the official story, Dr. Humes, during the course of the autopsy, was, by all official accounts, unaware of the fact that there was a gunshot wound that had pierced the president's neck, one that was either an entrance wound or an exit wound, one or the other. But either way, it was a real wound, and it was present in the anterior, or front, of the neck area. But it was now conveniently obliterated by the tracheotomy incision made at Parkland and not readily recognizable through observation by the time the president's body got to Bethesda. But nonetheless, the existence of that wound was known. In fact, it was known to millions of people by the time the autopsy began, which makes it so strange that the autopsy doctors themselves did not know of its existence. Surely someone in that group of 24 participants that night had seen the news that day. There is good reason to believe that both of these official assertions, the first, that Humes did not know at the time of the autopsy of the front wound to the neck, and the second, that there was no separate bullet recovered during the autopsy, are both false. First, Humes did indeed know, or became aware at some point during the autopsy, that in fact a bullet wound seen from the front by the Parkland doctors was present in the president's neck. We will get to how we know that, That is, how we know that Humes knew this during the autopsy. We'll get to that in just a second. And to top it off, there is good reason and evidence to believe that a fully intact bullet, along with other fragments, was removed that evening at the autopsy, even though it was missing from the official record. Why it was missing may have had more to do with how the intact bullet or the fragments were positioned. That is, whether or not the bullet or the fragments were found in such a position so as to indicate a possible shot that came from some direction that was, well, other than above and from behind. Keep in mind, at that moment, 
the moment of the autopsy, the complexities of firing time and the Manlicher Carcano rifle limitations had not been revealed yet through study of the Zapruder film and the rifle itself. What had been known from the very start, from right after the shooting, is that the story was going to be about a lone gunman, about a one-gun, one-shooter story. It was a shooting from above and behind the president, and there was only one direction of shots, and all the evidence needed to support that thesis. And if there was contrary evidence, such evidence needed to be eliminated or ignored. So why are each of these two items, both, so important? Why does it make the whole autopsy story, the story that is included in the official version of all this, quite dubious? Certainly, there is a longer list of potentially nefarious things related to the autopsy, but these two have fairly definitive evidence that the official version is false and that they are material to the conclusions. If you read the official account of things, Humes did not stumble upon the existence of the throat wound until well after the autopsy was over. As he recounts, in the wee hours of Saturday morning, apparently still grasping for answers, and certainly unstated, but perhaps it was because he was unsure about his conclusion from the night before, a conclusion that a bullet was forced out by cardiac massage, the bullet that Seibert and O'Neill informed Humes about during the autopsy and that had been recovered from a stretcher at Parkland Hospital. As the story goes, Dr. Humes had two telephone conversations with Malcolm Perry, the lead emergency room physician that took care of the president at Parkland. On the day of the assassination and the autopsy, Perry had made reference to a front, that is an anterior throat wound, three different times in the course of the post-mortem press conference at Parkland. The existence of that front or anterior wound to the neck was by all accounts, all over the news, and on its way to millions of households as the interview was carried on television, radio, and also picked up by other news services, including UPI. To top it off, Dennis David was chief of the day for the Bethesda Naval Medical Center, and when events began to unfold, he too reported that he went into the office of the Master of Arms and he listened to the radio to get updates on what was happening as the assassination aftermath was unfolding. And guess who happened to walk in and listen to those radio accounts with him? Dr. J. Thornton Boswell. Boswell was one of the doctors that, within hours, would be performing the autopsy of the president. Dr. Pierre Fink, the third pathologist on the autopsy medical team that night, was not called to attend the autopsy until about 7.30 p.m. in the evening, and he was home with his wife at the time he received that call, watching accounts of what had been going on, according to statements he later made to the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. Now, there is no definitive statement by either of these two gentlemen that they saw or heard anything on the news or heard anything from anyone else about the throat wound before they walked into the autopsy room. But it seems quite odd that they did not. Well, regardless, that's not proof that they knew. But before we talk about why we know that at least Humes knew, let's talk about why it's important. 
Most of the accounts of those two conversations between Dr. Humes and Dr. Perry have them taking place on Saturday morning in the wee hours after the autopsy. That official version of the story makes several things possible. First, it allows Humes to make the plausible assertion during the course of the autopsy that the shot which hit the president in the back could be accounted for by the bullet that was found on the Parkland stretcher the one that Seibert and O'Neill told him about during the latter stages of the autopsy. Humes would reassert before the end of the autopsy that the bullet had probably just worked its way out of the president's body during external cardiac massage at Parkland. Without a current knowledge of the neck wound, there was no reason and no need for Dr. Humes during the course of the autopsy to definitively connect these two wounds. That was quite convenient for Dr. Humes and the rest of the autopsy team. Why, you say? Well, as we have already stated, the clinical critics say that any qualified forensic pathologist who was aware of the existence of that neck wound at the time of the autopsy, a wound that could have explained the traverse of the bullet from the president's back to the front and then out of his body through his neck, well, they would have performed a procedure called a section of the shoulder. Sectioning of the shoulder would have confirmed or denied the true trajectory and path of that bullet, if indeed there was one, and that would have been especially critical for the integrity of the autopsy, particularly in light of declaring that there was little depth to that hole in the president's back, that the bullet just penetrated and then just seemed to stop. The record shows that Humes probed that hole, and it was not deep, and it did not appear to have an exit path through the body. You see, if that shoulder had been sectioned, it would have been the only true way to link those two wounds. And the only way that could have been done is during the autopsy. And it could have determined if the bullet that entered the back had indeed taken a path of exit out of the front and through the bullet wound that was now obliterated by the tracheotomy incision. How convenient. On Saturday morning, it was now too late to perform any more autopsy procedures. On Saturday morning, after supposedly having the conversations with Dr. Perry, and only then did Dr. Humes connect the back wound with the front neck wound too late for any sectioning to confirm or deny that theory. At about this time, there was one more ancillary fact that began to morph as well, for it too was needed to make the connection. That was the reference to the wound as being in the back. That reference began to disappear. It now became an upper shoulder entry. Because a back wound did not support a downward trajectory and exit through the neck. One thing was for sure, they were still solely trying to solve for a single gunman shooting from the top of the Texas School Book Depository. And so, the simple geometry of that shot angle was still being emphasized. A shot would have had to have entered higher in the back than where it exited on the front at a higher downward angle if these two wounds were to be successfully linked together. A subtle change, those doctors thought, in language a subtle change associated with how you describe the back wound. My, they were wrong. It was not subtle. Now, let's turn to the story of the undocumented bullet. First, 
Why would finding a bullet during the course of the autopsy be problematic? I mean, the stated reason for the autopsy was to find the bullets and link those bullets to the gun that supposedly had been used by the accused assassin. Was this bullet I am about to describe found early during the autopsy and in a position on the body that would have indicated a shot from the front? Or at least not consistent with a shot coming from the depository? We simply don't know, but we know the whole bullet existed, and so did additional fragments. The theories about Oswald as a lone gunman were widely circulated by the start of the autopsy at about 8 o'clock that evening. And so, if we know anything, we know one thing that had to come out of the autopsy, and that was that there was to be no contrary evidence of a shot from any angle or direction except for a shot from behind and above. We certainly know that at the moment of the autopsy, that the complications around the number of shots, as defined by the Zapruder film timing, and the limitations of shooting a Manlicker Carcano rifle were not yet known, and so they were not yet under consideration by the Warren Commission staff. So that motivation at that moment was an unlikely consideration for those trying to control the autopsy, if that were in fact going on. That is an important fact for us as a jury to understand. It's easy to get drawn into all aspects of conspiracy theory, but the timing of these events is critical in understanding what the motivations may or may not have been at that moment. However, the idea of a shot coming from a contrary direction, that is, from some direction other than from the rear and higher up, if there was evidence of that anywhere on the president's body, that would have created a complication for what was already shoring up to be a tidy little story of a lone gunman theory, a nut who did it and acted alone doing it. With that as a backdrop, let's present the evidence. Regarding the idea that Humes knew about the anterior neck wound during the autopsy, there is no better credible evidence than the testimony of Dr. Robert Livingstone and the letters that he wrote. This is testimony of a witness that was directly involved that night in a conversation to inform Dr. Humes. It involves a highly credible witness at the highest levels of our government. A witness who is clinically competent, highly clinically competent. A witness that made repeated attempts in various venues after the assassination to set this record straight with high officials of our government and its then-current administrations. But like so much that encompasses this case, he was simply ignored. Let's give you a little bit of background on Robert B. Livingstone, M.D. Like so many characters in this play, Livingstone had a prodigious and impressive background. He was also a well-connected man who ran in the high social circles of Washington and academia. He was a hiking buddy of Robert S. McNamara, who was President Kennedy's Secretary of Defense. Dr. Livingston was about 45 years old at the time Kennedy was assassinated. He had studied at Stanford University, and he was graduated in 1940 before going on to obtain his M.D. degree from Stanford Medical School. During the Second World War, he served in the Pacific, and he took part in the invasion of Okinawa. He was a doctor and a naval officer. And as a naval officer, he earned the Bronze Star. 
During the war, he saw the destruction and suffering that took place as a result of the dropping of the two atomic bombs. It influenced him greatly. Later, and I am sure partly as a result of the influence of these events and the direction it took his life in, he would become socially active in the cause against nuclear proliferation, and he would earn a Nobel Peace Prize because of it. But first, in 1946, right after the war, he began work at the Yale University School of Medicine. He served on the faculty of the University of California, Los Angeles, from 1952 to 1960. And he had other teaching appointments at Stanford and Harvard, where he also taught pathology, anatomy, and psychiatry. In 1952, President Dwight Eisenhower appointed Livingston as the scientific director of the National Institute of Neurological Diseases and Blindness, as well as the National Institutes for Mental Health. And these were posts that he also held during the Kennedy administration. In 1964, Livingstone later founded the first-ever Department of Neurosciences at UCSD. In the 1970s, Livingstone was instrumental in developing some of the first 3D images of the human brain. Later, he was awarded a major grant to develop a prototype computer system to map the brain in three dimensions in microscopic detail. Livingstone was active in several anti-nuclear weapons and peace organizations, including the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And in 1985, as I mentioned earlier, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. Livingstone, along with David Manick, Charles Crenshaw, Ronald F. White, and Jack White, contributed to Assassination Science. It's a book edited by James H. Fetzer. Much of this episode is drawn from the information contained in that book. Robert B. Livingstone died in 2002. I am going to share now excerpts from letters sent by Dr. Livingstone to David Lifton and also to the editor of Newsweek. They are revealing and self-explanatory and clearly support the fact that Dr. Humes knew about the frontal wound before completing the autopsy. So here we go. I will begin the reading of the letters now. This is the first letter to David Lifton, dated the 2nd of May, 1992. I learned from a former classmate of mine from Stanford who was then a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Richard Dudman, that he was one of the White House press group that accompanied the president to Dallas. Not getting much information from the Parkland Hospital, Dick went out to inspect the Lincoln limousine in which the president and Conley and their wives had been riding. He thought he saw, for certain, that there was a through-and-through through hole in the upper left margin of the windshield. He described the spalling, splintering of glass at the margins as though the missile had entered from the front of the vehicle. When he reached over to pass his pencil or pen through the hole to test its patency, an FBI or Secret Service man roughly drew him away and shoot him off, instructing him that he wasn't allowed to come so close to that vehicle. If there were a through-and-through -through windshield penetration in that location, according to Dick, it had to come from in front. According to him, it would have been impossible to hit the windshield in that location from the overhead angle from the school book depository, nor would a through-and-through -through penetration have been likely to be caused by a ricocheting bullet bouncing up from the rear. What is most relevant from my personal experience is that on that same evening before the President's body on Air Force One had arrived at Andrews Air Force Base, I telephoned the Bethesda Navy Hospital. 
I believe that the call was made before the plane arrived because I recollect that it was following that call that I watched Robert S. McNamara, and that is Bob McNamara, who is a long-standing, since 1952, mountain climbing and hiking companion of mine. I watched him receive the Kennedy entourage and the casket being lowered on a forklift from the rear of the Air Force One onto the field tarmac. Inasmuch as I was scientific director of two of the institutes at the NIH, and both institutes were pertinent to the matter of the president's assassination and brain injury, the Navy hospital operator and the officer on duty put me through to speak directly with Dr. Humes, who was waiting to perform the autopsy. After introductions, we began a pleasant conversation. He told me that he had not heard much about the reporting from Dallas and from the Parkland Hospital. I told him that the reason for making such an importuning call was to stress that the Parkland Hospital physician's examination of President Kennedy revealed what they reported to be a small wound in the neck, closely adjacent to and to the right of the trachea. I explained that I had knowledge from the literature on high-velocity wound ballistics research, in addition to considerable personal combat experience examining and repairing bullet and shrapnel wounds. I was confident that a small wound of that sort had to be a wound of entrance, and that if it were a wound of exit, it would almost certainly be widely blown out with cruciate or otherwise wide-tearing outward ruptures of the underlying tissues and skin. I stressed to Dr. Humes how important it was that the autopsy pathologists carefully examine the president's neck to characterize that particular wound and to distinguish it from the neighboring tracheotomy wound. I went on to presume, further, that the neck wound would probably not have anything to do with the main cause of death, massive disruptive brain injury, because of the angle of bullet trajectory and the generally upright position of the president's body, sitting up in the limousine. Yet, I said carefully, if that wound were confirmed as a wound of entry, it would prove, beyond peradventure of doubt, that that shot had been fired from in front. Hence, that if there were shots from behind, there had to have been more than one gunman. Just at that moment, there was an interruption in our conversation. Dr. Humes returned after a pause of a few seconds to say that, in quotes, the FBI will not let me talk any further, end quote. I wished him good luck, and the conversation was ended. My wife can be good witness to that conversation because we shared our mutual distress over the terrible events, and she shared with me my considerations weighing the decision to call over to the Bethesda Navy Hospital. The call originated in the kitchen of our home on Burning Tree Road in Bethesda, with her being present throughout. After the telephone call, I exclaimed to her my dismay over the abrupt termination of my conversation with Dr. Humes through the intervention of the FBI. I wondered aloud why they would want to interfere with a discussion between physicians relative to the problem of how best to investigate and interpret the autopsy. Now, 
with knowledge of the apparently prompt and massive control of information that was imposed on assignment of responsibility for the assassination of President Kennedy, I can appreciate that the interruption may have been far more pointed than I had presumed at the time. I conclude, therefore, on the basis of personal experience, that Dr. Humes did have his attention drawn to the specifics and significance of President Kennedy's neck wound prior to his beginning the autopsy. His testimony that he only learned about the neck wound on the day after completion of the autopsy, after he had communicated with Dr. Perry in Dallas by telephone, means that he either forgot what I told him, although he appeared to be interested and attentive at the time, or that the autopsy was already under explicit non-medical control. That event, coupled with Dick Dudman's report to me around the same time of what appeared to him to be a penetrating hole through the Lincoln windshield, seems to me to add two grains of confirming evidence to the conspiracy interpretation. Incidentally, Sometime later, I learned that the Secret Service had ordered from the Ford Motor Company a number of identical Lincoln limousine windshields for target practice. It seems to me that they might have wanted to learn how much protection could be expected from such a windshield. Alternatively, they might have wanted to produce an inside nick in a windshield without through and through penetration so that they could substitute that nicked windshield for the other one, if it were needed for corroborative evidence relating to the Warren Commission's investigative interpretation and thesis. Wow, let's pause there. That's the end of the first letter. Livingstone wrote a second letter to Maynard Parker, who was editor then of Newsweek. It was dated the 10th of September, 1993, and it was after the first letter that went to David Lifton. Here it goes. I was scientific director of the National Institute for Mental Health and concurrently of the National Institute of Neurological Diseases and Blindness at the time of the assassination. These two institutes are obviously relevant to interpretations of brain damage sustained by the president. On the basis of November 22, 1963 broadcasts from Parkland Hospital, I felt obliged to call Commander James Humes at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, who was about to perform the autopsy. Our telephone conversation was completed before the body arrived at Andrews Air Force Base. I called to relay media reports from Parkland Hospital that there was a small wound in the front of his neck, just to the right of his trachea. Humes said he hadn't been paying attention to the news, but was receptive to what I had to tell him. We had a cordial conversation about this. Based on my knowledge of medical and experimental analyses of bullet wounding and personal experiences caring for numerous bullet and shrapnel wounds throughout the Battle of Okinawa, I told him that a small wound, as described, would have to be a wound of entry. When a bullet exits from flesh, it violently blows out a lot of tissue, usually making a conspicuous cruciate opening with tissue protruding. A wound of entry, however, just punctures as it penetrates. So I stressed the need for him to probe that wound to trace its course fully and to find the location of the bullet or fragments. 
I especially emphasize that such a wound had to be an entry wound. And since the president was facing forward the whole time, that meant that there had to be a conspiracy. As we talked about that, he interrupted the conversation momentarily. He came back on the line to say, I'm sorry, Dr. Livingstone, but the FBI won't let me talk any longer. Thus, the conversation ended. Two important subsequent events are noteworthy. Commander Humes did not dissect that wound, and when asked why not, in the Warren Commission hearings, he said that he didn't know about the small wound in the neck until the following day when he had a conversation with Dr. Perry at Parkland Hospital. A further issue concerns reports of the appearance of cerebellar tissue in the occipital wound. This was first reported live as observations by an orderly and by a nurse, both of whom were in the surgery where attempts to resuscitate the president were conducted prior to his death. I didn't give any credibility to those stories and dismissed them from my focus at the time, attributing what I thought must be mistaken identification of cerebellum to a likely lack of familiarity with neuroanatomy by two non-medically trained individuals. It would be easy to assume cerebellum in looking at macerated cerebral tissue protruding from a bloody wound. But since then, around six reputable physicians who saw the president at that time have testified that cerebellum was extruding from the wound at the back of his head. That is an important clue indicating that something must have burst into the posterior fossa with sufficient force to uproot the cerebellum and blow a substantial hole through the heavy covering, well-anchored tentorium, which separates cerebellum from the main chamber of the skull. Well, there you have it. If I were going to pick a witness to put in front of you on this topic... Well, there you go. What more could I ask for, especially if I was an autopsy conspiracy theorist? And remember, the problem with this part of a cover-up is that it comes down to one thing. There were only government officials involved in this episode. That is what makes this part of the cover-up really scary. Even if it was done with the noble cause of avoiding a nuclear showdown. It's a tough one to swallow if you want to believe the lone gunman, lone nut theory. Well, how is that for an ending? You really can't write this stuff. Again, this is the story of the JFK assassination where truth really is stranger than fiction. It's been an extremely long episode, longer than I like, and now I'm hungry. So you know what's coming up. Yep. I need to go get a sandwich, and so I'll pause right there and leave the story of the intact bullet for episode 71, but you won't have to wait long. In fact, if you take a look, it's out now too. Thank you for listening to episode 70 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 